Good morning. My name is Eddie, and I'll be reading the second Bible reading. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 2, verse 7. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecy once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight. Holding on to faith and a good conscience, some have rejected this, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to be blasphemed. I urge, then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for the kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all goodness and holiness. This is good and please God, our Saviour, who wants all men to be safe and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in his proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of true faith to the Gentiles. Well, we're going to come to reflect on this word from God. And so let's uh, join our hearts in prayer once again. Uh, you might like to keep the Bible open and also the outline. If you'd like to take notes, the, the outline's there. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, help us to receive it. Not just the word of anyone, but the very words of God himself. So, Lord, we pray that you'll convict us, change us by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Christian life can be described in many ways. Many, many ways. How would you describe your Christian walk, your Christian life? Some might say it's a walk in a park. But I suspect if you've been a Christian for quite a while, you'll say... It's no walk in the park, it's more like a walk through the jungle. Or some might say being a Christian is like going grocery shopping. You need it to survive, you do it, you get what you need, and then you put it aside. Some see the Christian walk that way. Uh, for some it's enjoyable, for some it's not, for me it's not. But perhaps for some of us, Christian, our Christian walk is just like to going to the groceries and you... Once it's done, you put it aside. But more often than not, what we find in the scriptures and from the letters of Paul is that the Christian walk is like a soldier going to battle. It's like a soldier going to battle. No walk in the park at all. But there are skirmishes and fighting and battles happening. And certainly not something you can just put on the side and forget like go grocery shopping. It's a constant struggle that you have to struggle in and never concede. And we hear this throughout the New Testament in Ephesians 6. Paul says you put on the whole armour of God. In 2 Timothy 2, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. It is a battle. And of course in our passage, fight the good fight. You see, we're called to be soldiers. 
in our growth group this past week. Uh, that's what we spoke about and reflected on. We're soldiers, not the opposite of a soldier. And we're wondering, what's the opposite of a soldier? And someone said, a wuss. Now, I don't, I don't remember using that word since primary school, but I like that. We're to be soldiers, not wusses. It was, in fact, Benjamin Brantney Bockett, an English minister in the 1850s. He said, The Christian is not permitted to float leisurely down the stream of the world and so reach the haven where his soul would be. He must swim against the current and for, this very, and for his very life, the faith which he professes with his lips, he must adorn with his life. And so if a Christian is swimming, it is swimming against the current. If a Christian is running, it is a marathon. And if a Christian is fighting, it is as a soldier of Jesus. And so I wonder whether, as you reflect on your life and your Christian walk, is that how you see your life? Is it a leisurely stroll or is it a battle as a soldier? Because I suspect if we're not aware of this and if we're not prepared for this, we may end up shipwrecking our faith. And I'm sure many of us would know of people who once, and it breaks our hearts, once would say, I trust in Jesus, but now they deny him. And I'm sure we all know someone like that. And so Paul here in this passage instructs Timothy, fight the good fight. Not just for your own sake, Timothy, but for the sake of the entire church for the sake of every soul in the church, so that everyone in the church will not become complacent about their faith, will not just concede to the culture, but will remain fighting as a soldier. Now here in this passage, we're not exactly sure what was prophesied about Timothy, but later in this book, we're told that he's not to neglect the gifts that is in him by the laying on of hands by the council of elders. And so we can suspect that the gifts that Paul is talking about are the gifts of being a pastor, a leader of the people of God, and a teacher. And so Timothy is here called, in keeping with those gifts you've been given, fight the good fight. And so have a look with me, verse 18. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction. Now that word there, instruction, it's a strong word. It is to urge, to implore. So Timothy, I implore you, in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the good fight. Now I want you to reflect just for a moment from Timothy's perspective. He's a young pastor. Why did he need to hear that? Why did he need to be urged and implored by the Apostle Paul to fight the good fight? He's a minister. We well, see even ministers of the gospel need to be reminded, encouraged, urged, spurred, implored. Timothy, you see, the life that has been set before you, there is no throwing in the towel. There is no throwing in the towel when it comes to your faith and to your ministry. Timothy, do not take the easy way out. And Timothy, you press on in faith. You hold firm to the gospel. You never let it go. And that's what Paul meant when he, when he says in verse 18, having faith and a good conscience. That is how you fight. How do you fight? You hold on to the faith. You defend the faith. 
you hold on to Jesus, you cling to him. You make sure you are always unashamed of Jesus Christ. You correct false teaching and you even fight eternally and internally from your sins. You flee, you repent. You continue to battle as a soldier. You see, for Timothy, it was no easy task. In fact, for any Christian, it's no easy task to fight the fight, let alone a young pastor. Now, I did a bit of digging around. And did you know that in Australia, the statistics has it that there are about 13,000 ex-pastors in Australia? Ex-pastors. 75% of them left the ministry depressed, disenchanted, or damaged. A research psychologist says many suffer from stress-related issues, working around the clock, dealing with relationships, broken relationships. And to make matters worse, almost half no longer go to church. I mean, they were once pastors. And so, Timothy, you need to remember it's not going to be easy. Not going to be easy at all. As a pastor, as a leader of God's people, it is a battle. But as we hear this, we must remember the command to Timothy applies to all Christians. Fight the good fight. And why? We look at verses 19 to 20 now. Some have, ship, uh, some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now, as you reflect on your life and the relationships you have, it's sad to know, isn't it, that those who once would love Jesus and acknowledge him have turned their backs on Jesus and have shipwrecked their faith. Do you know anyone like that? I'm sure we all do. Sailing comfortably through life, cruising along, but then crash and they are shipwrecked. There's an older gentleman on my street in his 90s used to be a faithful churchgoer, attended church faithfully, attended to different committees, served on these committees at church. But the last time I spoke to him, no evidence of that faith at all. It's been shipwrecked. And I'm sure many of us know people like that. But here Paul includes an interesting comment. Do you see that? Of handing them over to Satan. Now what does that mean? Well, these false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, it was made clear to them, you do not belong to God anymore. And Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But the intention of handing him over, handing them over, was always for restoration so that they might see their wrong, repent and be restored. And so Timothy, Paul is reminding him, you see what happens if you do not continue fighting the fight. If you get complacent, if you concede, you might shipwreck your faith. And we reflected this in our growth group this past week. The question was simple. The group, about 15 of us, in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, will all of us continue to profess Jesus as Lord? Or will there be some of us who might turn away? In fact, the stats are even in youth group. 50% who go to youth group will one day turn their back on Jesus. Obviously not what we pray for. And so we fight the good fight. And we do that by firmly holding on to the faith, 
holding on to Jesus. And Paul makes that clear. How do you fight the fight? Well, we fight the fight firstly in the realm of prayer. That's what Paul goes on to speak of. And it is largely because our prayer reveals what our heart is like, whether our heart is aligned with the heart of God. I mean, just reflect on your last few prayers. You know, think about the last few prayers you've prayed. What has been the flavor of your recent prayers? Is it, I pray for me, my family, my successes, my stresses, my health? Not that we can't pray for those things. Of course we can and we must. We bring all things to God in prayer. But do we go beyond those things? And so Paul here says, in your battle, you battle in the realm of prayer. And our first priority, look at verse 1 now. First of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Petitions is how we bring our pleas before God. We request, Lord, give me my daily bread. That's what the word petition means. Uh, the word prayer, it's a general word for, for prayer. We come to God with an open heart. Intercessions, that is where we stand with others. We stand with those who are suffering and we pray on their behalf. We bring their pleas to God. We intercede. And of course, thanksgiving be made for everyone. We don't forget to thank God. But do you notice who we're meant to pray for? Do you notice in that verse? It is for everyone. Which means I don't just pray for those I like. I don't just pray for those who are like me. I don't just pray for those who like me, but I pray for even those who do not like me. I've got a very close friend, and we meet pretty much most week. We're like accountability partners. We share our life together. We share our ministries. We share our struggles. We share the difficult conversations we've been having. We share how we've been hurt by certain people. It's, it's a, he's a trusted brother. We share how we've been deeply hurt. And what do we do? We don't then go on to complain and whinge. We always remember we pray for them, even those who hurt us. And so Paul says he pray for everyone. But now he qualifies who are those we are to pray for. Verse 2, for kings and all those who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now we might think, why? Don't you think, why? Pray for kings and leaders, all those in authority. Why should I pray for a government I don't like? Or a bad government, why should I waste my prayers on them? Why should I pray for my supervisor, for my boss, if they're not very nice? Why should I pray? Well, you see, Paul does not make this conditional at all. You don't get to choose who you pray for. In fact, Paul wrote this during the time when Emperor Nero was the emperor over the Roman Empire. Now, if you know anything about Emperor Nero, he was a guy who persecuted Christians. He would dip Christians in tar, set them ablaze to light up his garden. But Paul says, pray even for him. Even for him and for his soul. 
And so our prayers needed to include our leaders. And I'm so glad in Margaret's prayer, we pray for our leaders. But do you notice why we're meant to pray for them? Verse 2 again. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Partly is simply because we want to just get on with life as a peaceful Christian. Leading the godly life God has called us to. We don't want to worry about being gagged in public discourse and opinion where if you're a Christian, then your thoughts and your beliefs cannot be heard. We don't want to worry about that, do we? We don't want to be thrown into prison because we, if someone's converted from Islam to Christianity. I mean, that's how it is in many countries. We don't want to be discriminated against such that the laws of the state will restrict our freedoms in what we pray for and what we proclaim. And so what do we do? We don't bag out the leaders. We pray for them. We pray for them. In fact, where there is a good government that is aligned with the principles of the Bible, it is better for everyone, not just the Christians. There will be more liberties, more freedoms, greater education, more prosperity. In fact, the prosperity of our country I'm reading a book at the moment. It's called The Fountain of Public Prosperity. It's largely because of evangelical Christians. That settlement, the first generation of Christians, the second generation of Christians, largely because of them. It is, in fact, what you want in a secular society, one that is aligned with God. Now, of course, the word secular has come to mean many different things. It means anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-religion. But that's not how the word used to be understood. You see, to be a secular society means to be interested in the things of this age. It comes from the Latin, which comes from the Greek. To be interested in this world. A secular society is one that is interested in securing the happiness and well-being of society. And do you know how it used to be understood in the 1800s in Victoria, in our state? How do you secure the happiness and well-being of the people of Victoria? Well, one of the ways was through education. And so in the Secular Education Act of Victoria, where secular instructions are to be given in our public schools, how it was understood back then was that the word secular was meant, that, meant that you do not discriminate between the different Christian denominations. We're not preaching Prezi stuff or Anglican stuff or Methodist stuff. We teach a general Christianity. So to be a secular society back in the 1800s was still to teach the Bible. Now, how is that compatible? Because to secure happiness in society means you need to have a moral society. And where does your morality come from? It comes from Christianity. And so back then, it was expected that a, cha that a chapter of the Bible was read in school every morning in a secular setting. Now, of course, it's no longer that case. But do you see what Paul was getting at here? You pray for your leaders because if they align with God, it is better for everyone. But more than that, Paul tells us, verses 3 and 4, This is good, and it pleases God our Saviour, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's true that when churches and Christians are persecuted, the church grows. You see that in Iran. 
You see that in China. Jesus will build his church and the gates of Hades will never prevail over it. In difficult times, the church will still grow. But it does please God when leaders, when rulers, when society functions the way God wants with harmony and peace. A peaceful society more easily allow Christians to flourish, to propagate. In fact, that's what we saw in the 4th century. Do you remember um, your church history? The first Roman emperor to become a Christian was Constantine. When he became emperor, what happened to the Roman Empire was completely changed. Christianity was no longer illegal but became legal. The sanctity of human life was changed. It was now honoured. Crucifixion was stopped under, under Constantine. Churches were built. And it was also the time when public wealth, welfare was pioneered. And so a peaceful, harmonious society is pleasing to God. But there's more. What is it that God really wants? Well, we see in that verse that everyone be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth, to see that there is only one God and one mediator, to see that all souls will be accountable to God. And so, Timothy, that is the fight you're in. You be in prayer for your leaders, but you be in prayer for souls, that they might be saved. And I do wonder whether that might even challenge how we think how we pray. Now I know all of us will have someone we're praying for, for their soul, for their salvation, a close family member, a close friend. We plead to God, please save my auntie, my cousin, my friend. But do we go beyond that? The lady down the street who drives me crazy, do we want their soul to be saved? That boss who is so demanding, do we want that boss's soul to be saved? Do we plead for their souls? I mean, it's worth thinking about, isn't it? Does our heart reflect the heart of God? Are there some in our minds who are more deserving of the grace of God than others? You walk past a homeless person in the city. What happens to your heart when you see that? Stay away? Or do you pray, God have mercy on this person? I made that my habit. It was good for my heart. God have mercy on this person. The person who is odd and different and smelly, what happens in your heart? God have mercy on that person. And so do you see what we learn from this verse? What we learn is something about God. We learn and see how inclusive God is. God is way, way more inclusive than we are. I mean, you hear this language in public discourse, don't we? That you Christians, that your God is so exclusive, not at all. I mean, you reflect on this. Would you allow a thief into your home and to have dinner with your family? Would you allow someone who hated your guts into your home and sleep in one of your rooms? Would you let a slanderer, someone who gossiped about you, into your home, someone who talked rubbish of your family? Would you let a murderer into your home? 
Now I know we all are caught to love, but I know we all know that our love has a limit. Not so with God. Because in God's home one day, there will be those who blasphemed against him. There will be the thief and the robber. There will be even the murderer. You see, God is far more inclusive than we would ever be. And so with God, there's no racism or sexism or any ism at all. Why? Because God wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But then the question remains, how will anyone be saved at all? Well, the one and only true God has made the provision of the one and only mediator between God and mankind. There is no other way. No one can just decide, I'm going to approach the holy God. If we do that, we will die in an instant. God is holy. We are sinful. There needs to be someone who stands between God and us. One who stands before God as pure. One who shields us from the wrath of God. One who takes on the anger of God upon himself. One who is what the Bible describes as the propitiation for sin. That is, he takes on the sin, the wrath that we deserve. And God has provided such a provision. There is one. Not an angel, not any person, but his very own son, Jesus Christ. The man God. And that's what Paul goes on to say in a summary of the beautiful gospel, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. You see, there is no other way. God wants everyone to be saved, but there is only this way through Jesus Christ. And so God desires everyone to be saved. God is as inclusive you could ever get. Everyone. Though not everyone will be saved because there is only one way. It is exclusively through Jesus Christ. And so in a sense, God is inclusive in his scope, in salvation, but he's exclusive in his means. You can't pick your own way. You can't pick your own path. You can't pick your own religion. It is only through Jesus. No one else can pay for my sins. No one else can atone for my sins. And there is no one else I would stake my life upon. And so the death of Jesus we see here is sufficient for all. That's why Paul goes on to speak about Jesus. God wants everyone to be saved. Well, Jesus is the way. He is sufficient for all because God desires everyone to be saved. It is sufficient, but it is only effective for those who come to him. Jesus Christ, the only way. And no doubt that was part of the battle that Timothy had to fight in the church. These false teachers were sort of getting that switched around. They thought God was exclusive in his scope. That is, we only want Jews to be saved, not the nations, not the Gentiles. And they thought God was inclusive in his means. We can get to God any way we want. Through the law, through our false teaching. But it is wrong. God is inclusive in his scope. That is everyone. But exclusive in his means. Only by Jesus. We cannot mix that up. 
And that was precisely what Paul was appointed to do in our final verse. For this, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so Paul is saying, to the nations I will go. God wants everyone to be saved, and so to the nations I will go, so that they might come to the knowledge of the truth. And I don't care what the world says, this is my fight. And so Paul says to Timothy, be like him. Fight in the realm of prayer, and then go. And so now it comes to us. What are we to come to see? Well, we have to remember the Christian walk is not meant to be easy. It is meant to be a fight. But it is a fight not only for ourselves, for our own salvation, that we hold firm to the faith, so that in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, all of us will still be professing the faith we believe today. But it is also a fight for the souls of others, with our prayers and with our proclamation. And so perhaps today it is worth reflecting on your own lives. Are you at the moment just floating leisurely through life, down the stream casually, walking through the park, cruising along without the burden of God on your heart, swimming with the current, not against it? Or are we in the trenches as we've called to be? as a soldier of Jesus, contending for the gospel, fighting for souls. And perhaps part of our prayers, we need to remember how much are we praying for the salvation of souls. I mean, do you know what I've been praying? I've been praying for our church that everyone in our community, I mean, you have thousands of people who drive past each day. You have thousands who live around our neighbourhoods. And there's a few hundred of us here. There are so many lost souls. I've been praying that every single one in our community will see this place, not just the building, but the community here, and not think this is irrelevant, and not think this is just old-fashioned, and not think this has nothing to do with me. What I've been praying is that hopefully everyone in our community will see our place, our community, and if they have a question, I want to know about God. I want to know about life. I want to know about heaven and hell. I want to know Jesus. Where do I go? I know exactly where to go. Here, to you. That's what I've been praying. I mean, if God's desire is that everyone be saved and God has provided the only means, Jesus Christ, we do need to ask ourselves, what are we doing about it? Of course, this is not by our own strength at all, but by the Spirit of God in us. But when you consider the fights of those who went before us, don't you want to engage in what they were engaged with? Don't you want to be in the trenches with them as opposed to just cruising along in life? I mean, you read the, the stories of Hudson Taylor, who went to China. He went to China when he was 22 Makes me wonder what I was doing at 22. Adoniram Judson. Sorry about that. Adoniram Judson. He went to Burma at 24. 
William Carey, who went to India. He was only 32. There's a guy in our growth group who was a missionary in PNG. He went at 27. I mean, it's not saying that doing mission is the only way. But what is God doing in our heart? Does our life reflect the desire of God? And unless we're fighting, who will? And so the lesson is simple, isn't it? What is the flavor of your life now? A walk in the park? A going to the groceries? Or is it a fight as a soldier of Jesus Christ? I mean, there's this old hymn, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Do you remember that one? Well, that's who we are. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we reflect on your wonderful provision of the mediator, Jesus Christ, the one who stands between you and us, help us to see your urgency of souls saved. Shape our prayers, Lord, we pray. Shape our hearts, Lord, we pray. And do send some of us, Lord, that souls might be saved. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. Amen.